Hello and welcome to SRUC Veterinary Services on the Hoof podcast series for Vets in Practice. I'm Alison Braddock and I will be talking to VIO and Centre Manager Colin Mason about Q fever and this follows our CPD webinar on the subject and what we'll do is we'll put a link in uh, with the information on this podcast platform. Hello Colin and welcome. Hi, morning, how are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. So what is Q fever and why is it important? Thanks, Alison. Q fever um, is a clinical disease and in the veterinary context, we're mainly interested in it affecting uh, small ruminants, sheep and goats and cattle, um, although it can affect and affect uh, a wider range of animal species than that, including wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it is a disease of humans as well. So it is a zoonosis that we need to be aware of. Um, so that's what the disease is. It's important um, uh, causing clinical disease, so mainly reproductive disease in um, livestock species. Uh, it can also cause flu-like symptoms and sometimes more severe disease in humans. So it's something that we need to be be quite aware of uh, as veterinary practitioners in terms of is it present on farms and is it causing problems on farms? Uh, and also be careful about it in terms of, of protecting um, uh, humans, particularly vets, livestock keepers, uh, and people that come into contact with animals. Okay, so so what actually causes Q fever, Colin? So Q fever is now known to be caused by a, a bacteria, which is a bacteria called Coxiella burnettii. Um, and um, this bacteria is um, quite an interesting one. Um, uh, it's an intracellular bacteria, so it lives within side cells. Um, and as far as the, the disease process is concerned and the epidemiology of the disease is concerned, there's also two forms of the bacteria. So there are these small cell variants, um, which are the ones that are mainly existing in the environment or, or do exist in the environment. Um, and these are very resistant to um, disinfection. Uh, they survive for long periods of time in the environment um, uh, and, and can be uh, hard to get rid of in the environment, potentially. Uh, and uh, this can sort of remain as a source of infection to um, susceptible species. And there is a large cell variant, which is the form that actually develops within a, an infected animal or person uh, and can go on to cause disease in in that host. So uh, the bacteria has been quite clever in that it's adapted into these two forms to sort of allow it to work well, survive and persist in the environment uh, and, and, and cause us some challenges when we're trying to control it. So how common is the disease in livestock and how often do you see it in the PM room or even in people, Colin? Yeah, so so various things there. In in livestock, um, it's one of these diseases. It is actually diagnosed in our PM rooms relatively infrequently. Um, uh, and 
like a lot of infectious diseases, as we develop more sensitive tests to detect them, we're likely to find it more. Uh, so traditionally, our main way of looking for it is to look at any um, aborted material. So that will be calves, lambs, goat kids, or indeed stillbirths. And they're all screened for Q fever, just using a very simple smear examination from the placenta. Uh, and those will and do pick up clinical cases. And we probably see them slightly more commonly in uh, sheep abortions and goat abortions than we do in cattle abortions. But what we're finding is, is, is that if you employ more sensitive tests for the disease, particularly the PCR test, which we can use and is available in the UK in different forms by different labs, then you will detect more of it. Um, and it is a bit of a dilemma of a disease because what we've found out, um, if we look at particularly dairy herds, then uh, if you look at bolt tanks from dairy herds, um, bolt tank milk, then actually there's antibody evidence of exposure in these herds in probably about 80% of dairy herds in the UK. So there is evidence of fairly widespread exposure to the organism in dairy herds. And actually there's early indications that probably about 50%, half of dairy herd bulk tanks um, are actually PCR positive for uh, Coxiella burdettii. So in dairy herds, for example, it's quite a common disease out there, um, uh, as in the infection is, is quite common. Uh, and yet the clinical disease presentation is actually much rarer. Um, so I always view any clinical disease as a little bit like a pyramid in that the stuff that you easily spot is right at the top of the pyramid. Uh, mm -hmm. And those might be the abortions where it is diagnosed um there's probably a layer sort of a little bit further down the pyramid or if it was an iceberg it would be the layer that's just sitting under the water a slightly bigger layer where there may be subclinical disease that we're not picking up on quite so easily uh, and then there probably is a layer below that where um there is possible exposure to q fever by um from animals or, or, or exposure of animals to q fever uh where th there's perhaps no clinical disease at all um prevalence in beef herds is probably lower we don't have a a seroprevalence in beef herds um sheep and sheep flocks probably about nine ten percent in the uk there's been probably evidence of exposure um and um goat herds maybe slightly higher than that but it is one of these diseases where it's quite a common organism in the environment uh, and there will be exposure both of animals and humans uh, but the clinical disease rates thankfully are probably lower uh, and we're probably detecting more of it now than we were so we're learning more about it uh, uh, and we'll probably see more of it in in coming months and years as we look harder for it uh, so that's kind of the story in terms of humans roughly speaking there's about 100 cases of q fever reported in the uk every year um, uh, so again there's probably a degree of under reporting there but it but it is a recognized zoonosis and it is something that we need to take seriously as well so colin what are the clinical signs um, that the farm vet should look out for so I think to answer that question, I'll start off with with sort of diagnostic criteria that kind of help us through these dilemmas around Q fever. So there's some quite good um, 
diagnostic criteria that were actually laid down by the European Food Safety Authority. Um, and I'll quote it. it. What it says is, in order to harmonise the reporting of Q fever outbreaks in domestic ruminants, so that's cattle, sheep, goats, it is proposed that a herd flock be considered as clinically affected when serial abortions have occurred. The presence of C. burnettii is confirmed by PCR from animals that have aborted, and there is evidence of antibody in um, uh, affected cows, sheep, or goats, uh, and that gives us quite a good look into the whole thing in terms of you know what we need to 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 see to um, think about the clinical signs. So, my first thought and my first message to any farmer or farm vet is is investigate the highest risk population. Where you're most likely to find it would be looking at uh, abortions or stillbirths. Um, so whether that's um, goat herds, sheep flocks, or um, dairy herds or beef herds. And the way I would view that is, you know, get your abortions investigated. It's really, really important to do that, not just for Q fever, but for any possible cause of abortion. The way I would view particularly a late-term abortion is, is that that is an unexpected event. Um, the expectation is, 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 is that once the pregnancy is established, that it should carry forward to term that's the expectation so when that doesn't happen and of course it doesn't happen in every case that is an unforeseen unexpected event that's worthy of investigation um, and in, if we do that it gives us the opportunity to investigate the full range of differential diagnoses including q fever which is really really helpful for health planning flock health planning whatever uh, really really important um, and my other main message about abortion investigation in general is, is what we're really looking for, to be honest, is negative results. Um, because that's great news for a farmer, because what you can then say is, well, we've we've screened your aborted calf or aborted lamb for all these infectious diseases, and we've not found any. And that obviously includes Q fever. Uh, and that's actually really good news from a sort of a flock health planning point of view or a herd health planning point of view. So uh, I would focus your clinical signs and your clinical looking on abortions. Stillbirths is something that I'm thinking uh, I'm particularly interested in as well. Um, uh, uh, we've seen Q fever probably where we've diagnosed it most recently has been in stillbirths in dairy herds and particularly in stillbirths in heifers in dairy herds and and one of my take-home messages there is is that we might expect particularly in a, a cow that's calving for the first time to have a higher stillbirth risk and rate um, and it's possibly easy to assume that that's just down to you know the fact that she's calving for the first time and uh, all the rest of it but don't take that for granted. Stillbirth rates in dairy herds of greater than 5% are not normal and should be followed up and investigated. Uh, and I think as vets, we're more likely to do that in beef herds, beef suckler herds, where obviously the, the calf is the entire harvest and product for the year. Therefore, any stillbirth is a cost, significant cost to the business. In dairy herds, it remains a cost to the business, but many farmers probably will be content that the the animal is okay, the heifer is okay, uh, and she's she's going into milk and is milking well. So um, a word of caution around uh, stillbirths, um, don't take them for granted. Don't get take the abortions for granted either and get them investigated. Other clinical signs that have been mentioned in relation to Q fever um, are um, possibly infertility issues. So embryo loss, 
retained fetal membranes, metritis or endometritis, uh, reduced submission rates, uh, reduced conception rates. Um, and I would probably just urge people to take a holistic view of that. Q fever is a potential cause. Um, it is a single agent infectious disease. And any of those disease presentations that I've just mentioned are classic multifactorial disease processes where there could be many influences, many risk factors, many management factors. So it's important as a vet and as a farmer in conjunction with the vet-led team to really consider these disease presentations in the whole, uh, in the round, look at all the potential options. Q fever, Coxiella burnettii is clearly one. Uh, it may be relevant. It may be far less relevant. Uh, and, and that's the role of of the vet team to try and work out what place any single agent infectious disease has in the overall picture and where best to focus preventative measures. So Colin, if you suspect Q fever or need to rule it out, uh, um, how do you diagnose this disease on the farm? So we've kind of covered that, but really we've got various tools. Um, we've got the smear and PCR examinations that we can do on uh, abortion material and that's where I would focus it first uh, and that again as I've said gives you the opportunity to, to look at all the possible range of causes. Um, in dairy herds you have the options of looking at um, bulk tank milk either for antibodies or for the organism itself by PCR which gives you information on whether it's present in a herd or not it obviously doesn't tell you exactly what it's doing in that herd and that's where the challenges come in terms of trying to work out its place and how important or otherwise it is um, uh, and then there's antibody tests that we can use on uh, either bulk milk or dams that have aborted so that's particularly relevant for beef suckler herds or sheep flocks um, uh, goat herds etc to look for evidence of disease one other thing that's worth mentioning is 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 that if um, uh, labs diagnose it if we diagnose it at SIUC veterinary services then uh, since 2021 this disease has been reportable um, uh, which sometimes does put a bit of fear into people uh, and it shouldn't do because the reasons why it's reportable is 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 only simply to make uh, the the human health authorities and APHA aware that the disease is there uh, to try and help with managing zoonotic risk to provide constructive advice to the farm team in particular but also the vets on how to you know manage risk for Q fever and, and protect yourselves so that process um, shouldn't be feared and and is seen as a useful help to try and uh, keep people safe and also to to reduce the risk of um, well significant problems in animals as well through through the health planning process so uh, it, it is reportable and and that's something that we need to bear in mind as well yeah that's that's quite an important uh factor isn't it um so once the disease has been diagnosed on the farm what options are there for treating it so treatment options are limited uh and i, I really uh, would would stress that that isn't the focus of control uh um it is a bacteria you could argue um 
some antibiotic choices may have a place, but in reality, that isn't a practical option. Uh, and um, would question whether that's a responsible use of antimicrobials as well. So um, whilst obviously for humans, any treatment would be carried out in conjunction with um, doctors and health professionals. So that's not really for me to get into in this podcast. Uh, but as far as the animals are concerned, specific treatment options really aren't uh, a route that we would go down um, as a, a useful approach or a cost-effective or indeed a responsible approach. Uh, as far as other control options are concerned, there is a vaccine that is available. Uh, so that can help with disease management. Um, uh, and again, the questions really with that are, you know, cost versus cost benefit, when that vaccine is likely to play a role and how that fits into, you know, the overall health planning protocol for a uh a herd or a flock. So in the UK, the vaccine is licensed for um, uh, for cattle um, uh, and for goats. And in the EU, it's also licensed for sheep as well. Uh, um, and that does have a place. It has a place. It will reduce the abortion risk. Um, it's likely to reduce over time organism shedding, particularly if animals are vaccinated before they're served or before they're exposed. Um, uh, so when they're not pregnant and before they're exposed. So there is also some hope from a human perspective that it might reduce environmental burden and risk over time as well. So there are control strategies, but I wouldn't say treatment strategies through antibiotics is the way to go. Okay, Colin. So obviously this is an important zoonotic disease giving flu-like symptoms. So what measures can be implemented on the farm to actually prevent the disease in the first place? Yeah, so um, in terms of disease prevention, I already mentioned vaccine. Um, hygiene is always critical um, and, and reducing risk through hygiene. This is now really thinking firstly about animal to animal spread. Um, uh, infection is very often by an airborne route. So dust and windy conditions can play a role. Uh, um, so uh, if it's a very dusty environment in the organism in the environment, then it can be carried on the wind. Uh, and uh, that's something to bear in mind as well. But general hygienic advice, uh, you know, particularly in carving areas, keeping carving areas clean, removing uh, um, placentas, any abortion products, etc., like will help uh, uh, by reducing the environmental burden of the organism. So uh, those are, are are some things that are, are really important in terms of just generally controlling the disease, both for animals and for people. Um, I think for people as well, and I'm thinking particularly about farm teams and also vets, um, it's important, I think, to make people aware and to, to risk assess Q fever risk on any farm, uh, to have an awareness of whether it may or may not be there, um, to make people aware of what the, the clinical signs in people can be, um, which can be subtle, um, flu-like symptoms are mentioned. Uh, quite a lot of infections in humans will probably be without any symptoms at all. Uh, there can be some some very rare situations in humans, thankfully very rare, where it can cause um, 
liver disease, lung disease, heart disease. Uh, thankfully, they are are more rare, and it's more likely to be a, a flu-like syndrome uh, in, in humans. But we need to bear that one in mind and be quite aware of what what the clinical signs could be in humans. Um, uh, I, I think it's also important to identify high-risk staff because uh, you know it is an abortion agent, so. Um, staff or people that might be immunosuppressed for whatever reason uh, are perhaps at greater risk as well um, so hygiene is big really really important uh, some simple general advice on farm uh, double gloving for carvings abortions prolapses retained fetal membranes really really important same for lambings um, in really really high risk situations possibly using face masks um, reducing the risk of aerosols is really really important um uh, so uh, disposable gowns that can be disposed of before being washed down uh, trying to avoid creating an aerosol could be really really useful uh, um uh, and you know being very very careful about the hygiene of any ppe that's used particularly if you're either doing a looking at a cow that's aborted uh, or a sheep that's aborted or looking at any abortion material on farm uh, also just making sure that you know there's good quality hand washing facilities cleansing and disinfecting uh, facilities and all the rest of it on farm really really important so that's not an exhaustive list of things uh, but those are some practical measures i think that are useful to consider um, for anybody um, on farm uh, and and with any health and safety it's always a balance between risk precaution practicality common sense uh, uh, and and there is a route through that um, and there is a more comprehensive list if anybody wants to to take a listen to the webinar uh, it's discussed in more detail in that webinar um, and, and I could also signpost um, BCVA produced a, a quite a comprehensive list of um, uh, things to think about for vets uh, when dealing with Q fever in terms of not only what the disease does, but also how to uh, minimise any risk to people. Thank you, Colin. Um, that's been a really good overview of Q fever and with some really important messages. And I hope that our listeners have found this useful. Thank you. Thanks, Alison. I, I would also stress that really all we've done in this podcast is is sort of scratch the surface of uh, all the knowledge and all the uh, things to consider with Q fever. Um, so there is more information out there. Uh, there's some quite good recent um, articles for vets. There is good quality resources online to have a look at and take care of and consider uh, for vets and for farmers. So uh, like all these things, if you've got any queries from an animal health point of view, speak to your vet and they can help you know, work out what best to do and, and how to approach things. Similarly, if you've got any concerns uh, from a human health point of view is, is speak to your GP and uh, um, uh, take things from there. Okay, but thank you very much. Okay. And thank you everyone for listening as well. And we are on the SIUC platform, uh, podcast platform, as well as platforms like Spotify. You can literally just put in SIUC and you'll find our On The Hoof podcasts. Thank you.